0: Good evening, dummies. Episode 166. Checking all the sound. Everything looks good. Let's go. Welcome to Don't Unfriend Me. Wednesday, June 9th, 7.33 p.m. Last night's episode did really well. A lot of people seem to like it. Not a lot of comments, but a lot of views and a lot of watches. So thank you for doing that. That's always good to see. That's why I do this. And uh, tonight is not going to be any different than the other night. We're going to have some topics. Colorado Avalanche lost again. Three in a row they've lost. You, You know, listen, that's why the playoffs. It's a completely different season. If you are not a hockey fan, you may think your team is the greatest. But the playoffs, it's a different time and place and energy level than any other sport. I mean, football's pretty much the same people we always know are going to go, are going to go. Basketball, the same thing. Baseball, it's all predictable. But hockey, nobody gets it right. Like I said, the President's Cup tro- trophy has been a curse for the last 25 years. I think like three or four teams have won the President's Cup trophy. The Colorado Avalanche were the last. They're not done. They just got to go into Vegas. And it's ridiculous. I mean, that place is, is, is a can of death for most teams. And Vegas is built like a Stanley Cup team. They're going to do well. So let's hope. That's all we got. We can, we can hope and pray. But either way, Colorado Avalanche did not. They had the game in hand, and then they just gave it up last night. But anyway, I had to talk about it. I talk about it every night. It's wonderful to have you here. What are we doing? Besides talking about the Colorado Avalanche, choking. Laziness doesn't exist. According to NEO, Neo either does the spoon. What is laziness? We hear it all the time. People say, oh, I'm lazy. But is lazy real? Is it a state of mind? Is it just something that we say without truly getting to the root cause? We're going to get to the root cause tonight. Next, I'm not saying I'm right, just that you were wrong. People who can't admit that they are wrong. Is that everybody? Is it certain situations? Or are there people who are so completely unself-aware, which is not even a word, they're not self-aware, is it possible that it's only certain situations or is this an epidemic of, of, of proportions that we don't even understand? Is that there are people who can't admit in their job or their love life or marriage or as a parent or whatever that they're wrong? Well, we're going to talk about it tonight. We're going to talk about some of the signs of people who can't admit they are wrong. And lastly, probably one of my favorite segments of the year thus far, Louder at Loudoun County Public Schools. I have a video of my daughter I want to show you where she faced off against a teacher and then another teacher who came from Fairfax County to Loudoun County to speak on the behalf of students and faculty and the teachers union. And it's fantastic. I hope you stick around for it. But in the spirit of the higher education system, a sixth grade teacher asks her class, how many were Biden fans? Despite them not knowing what a Biden fan was, but wanting to be liked by the teacher, they all raise their hands. Well, all except for little Timmy. The teacher looks over to little Timmy and asks, Timmy, why are you being different again? And he says, Well, because I'm not a Biden fan. She says, Well, why aren't you a Biden fan? He says, Well, because I'm a Republican. The teacher snuffs and says, Oh, really? Why are you a Republican? He responds, Well, my mom is a Republican. My dad is a Republican. So I'm a Republican, too. She then says, Oh, really? Then what if your mom was a moron and your dad was an idiot? What would that make you? Little Timmy smiles and says, A Biden fan.
1: Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest, always direct. So sit back, relax. Don't Unfriend Me starts right now.
0: Welcome to episode 166 of Don't Unfriend Me. What is Don't Unfriend Me? A lot of people think it means that you can't block somebody or take them out of your lives on social media. That's not what it is. It's really about the people around us, the real people, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, is stop canceling people simply because we disagree. Uh, there are people who deserve to be unfriended on social media, and and they're really not friends anyway. You're just kind of swatting a mosquito or a fly in the digital landscape. But I'm talking about something deeper and meaningful, it's funny. People always call me, oh, first thing they say when I ban them is, of course, they tag me. So I go on my personal page because that's okay. But on my page, here's the thing. If you disrespect my listeners, you're gone. That's it. You're gone. You can say that they're jerks. You can say that they're wrong. You can disagree with their policy. And I let people go. But the moment that you say you're an f an idiot or you're you're gone, that's it. On either side, I don't care. You're going to somehow try to remain civil on my page. At least I'll do it as long as I can until I can't do it anymore. But the first thing that usually get these people and gets their goat meh, is they go, oh, God, this guy, don't unfriend me, man. He just blocked me. He blocked me. He did. I got him to do what he said don't do. <laughs> no, I said don't unfriend me. I didn't say anything about you. So you obviously have never watched the show. It's not about that. If you're an asshole, you're going away. If you are incorrigible, if you are unflappable in your resolve to be a complete douche, you're gone. I I just don't have the time or inclination. I don't need viewers that bad. Ultimately, until this makes money, if I have one or 20,000, it's really my narcissism that's just keeping me going, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. You're not going to stick around. Don't disrespect my viewers. Say what you want about me. I really don't care. But nobody really kind of attacks me. My stalker did, but that didn't last very long. But the point is, is because I I tried not to make it about me. I just try to bring you the news and bring you ideas and have you think about something different. Basically, I'm the Zima of today. If you don't know what Zima is, you are young. The malt beverage put out by Coors and it tasted like ass. If you ever wondered what drinking hand sanitizer would feel like from a texture standpoint, that was Zima. It was a real thick, multi liquid. It was just nasty. You could I, I would rather drink hand sanitizer. I digress, folks. Episode 166. This is Don't Unfriend Me. Who am I? My name is Matthew Spear. I am your host. I went the long way around the barn and went on a tangent. I do that from time to time, and usually the first five to seven minutes. That's what happens. Where can you find me? Well, wherever you're watching this. But if you were looking for some other sources, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, You can find me on Anchor. That's where all my podcasts are, Apple, iTunes. I'm pretty much all over the place. I really don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, and I don't use Twitch and all that type of stuff. But Facebook, YouTube, whatever, please stop on by. Say hello. If you have a YouTube account. Jump on over there, give me a like, share, and follow, subscribe, whatever the hell you do over there. It's going slow. Facebook has blown up, and we are well over 20,000 followers now, and that has to do with you, so thank you. Please give me a like, share, follow, subscribe. If you're not a follow person, if you're not a like person, and you just don't like social media, go to Don'tUnfriendMe.com. You can find my entire catalog, watch all my shows, and do all that stuff, and experience what you're experiencing tonight. So let's get it started. Laziness doesn't exist, either does the spoon. One of the two most significant statistics from this morning's jobs report, has everyone seen it? If you haven't, please look it up. It's alarming. Workers are not coming back. I just had a conversation with one of my owners where we had to make a hire, and we both agreed this is the most aggressive, from an employer standpoint, and lackluster workforce we've ever seen. People don't want to come back. Data released by the Labor Department was uh, this morning shows last month 61.6% of the working age population were active in the labor force, either working in jobs or looking for them. That is essentially unchanged from the summer of 2020. But the second most significant statistic is that wages are soaring. In May, average wages grew at 6.1% annual rate. In April, they grew at an 8.7% annual rate. Combine these two statistics tell much of the story of the economy this spring. employers, Employers are boosting wage offers in order to attract and retain workers who are increasingly difficult to attract and retain. By the way, Valor is hiring if you're in Virginia or Maryland. And we're paying very well. But this is a situation you would expect with employers' demand for workers growing much faster than workers are returning to the labor market. The supply and demand, after all. Labor demand is booming, and labor supply is not keeping up. The process of fully reopening the economy, it was always going to be herky-jerky, so to speak. And this imbalance between labor supply and labor demand will not last indefinitely. Factors keeping workers on the sidelines mostly seem temporary, lasting at most through the summer. And it couldn't possibly be the $300 of extra unemployment and child labor that they're giving back to kids. Oh, no. Free money never creates laziness, or does it? That $300 federal weekly supplement to standard state-provided unemployment benefits is playing a role in the stagnant workforce participation rate. That policy expires in September, and around half of the states will opt out sooner than that. But remember, the child in July, 300 or 250 dollars per child under the age of six and200 dollars over the age of six, all the way up to 18. Pretty much everyone in America, like 91 percent of America is going to get it. If you made over150,000 dollars, it'll dwindle down until nothing the more you made. That's coming in July. Struggles finding adequate childcare are likely playing a role to some extent as well. This should resolve itself as schools and child care centers reopen. In addition, it simply takes some time for workers to search for jobs and for employees to hire them. But is that really it? Even if workers return at faster rates in the fall, the potential of significant wage pressures growing over the summer is concerning because it could boost consumer prices. If upcoming inflation data show consumer prices going above 4%, Many will be alarmed. The Fed needs to adjust its communication strategy to make it clear to markets that it understands these risks. And policymakers should be looking for ways to relax constraints on people returning to work. Republican governors are doing that by opting out of the $300 unemployment benefit supplement. But more can be done. Long spells out of the labor workforce are bad for workers. In slack labor markets, employers are reluctant to hire workers who have been out of work for long periods of time. It's just a natural phenomenon that happens. Long-term non-employed workers see their professional networks weaken and their skills deteriorate. There is good evidence that workers' health outcomes suffer during long periods of unemployment. It would be better for the economy if workers were returning, yes. And it would also be much better for workers themselves to avoid long spells of non employment, workers sitting on the sideline is a serious issue. More is at stake than a bumpy economic ride. I remember the first time I stayed home sick from school. I got to read comic books, drink 7 Up, eat crackers in bed, and watch my mom and dad's 23 inch color TV in their room. I was hooked. This Zenith TV was gorgeous, by the way, a CRT cathode ray tube TV with all 13 channels, UHF and VHF. Fantastic. But I realized something, that staying home sick was much better than going to school, and something struck a chord in me. I tried to stay home every single day until that point, because it was literally better than any day at school. The worst day at home sick was better than any day at school. So when my wife and I had children, we decided after some conversation that this was probably hereditary, and this laziness, which isn't really laziness, was probably going to be built within my children. So they would only stay home if they were throwing up or had a temperature, right? That's what we all say. But we stuck to that. And occasionally we would pull them out of school. But to stay home, you either stayed in bed all day with no TV and you slept and and you rest, or you go to school. And it's worked. And my children have very strong attendance. But if you incentivize people to stay home, most assuredly they will. And this is what's happening. This creates not only laziness, but something more important than laziness, procrastination. Everyone knows I have to go back to work eventually, but they will do whatever they can to hold on to it and the last remnants of that, whether it means going into debt or letting it go to credit or turning down actually decent paying jobs, but maybe not as quite as good as unemployment. The point is, when will they increase their skill set? What are they doing to their long-term potential? you keep putting off things you know are extremely urgent to focus on, whether it's busy work or doing nothing at all, as a result, you're in a constant state of catch-up. No, no, not the thing you put on a hot dog, like catch up. The good news is the reason you procrastinate is not that you're lazy. Instead, putting things off to the last second has more to do with internal fear. Never leave till tomorrow, which you can do today, Mr. Benjamin Franklin. I am this way with expense reports. I can't stand doing my own expenses. When I became a director of sales and marketing it was the greatest day of my life because I knew I would have an assistant. I didn't get one. And I put off my expenses for months. I'm talking at some point 6 months at a time I would be filing receipts. It was horrible. I've been written up over it. I despise doing expenses. And it's not because I'm lazy. It's because I don't find value in it. I've spent the money. Who cares? It's over. Unless you look at my credit card and go, holy crap, this person spent $30,000. Who gives a shit? It's part of my job. Look at the freaking receipt. It's right there. It's on the statement. Why do you need me to tell you that I freaking bought a burger from in and out when it says in and out for $3.49? Now, if it says in and out for $172.36, I would expect you to tell me. And come to me and say, hey, shithead, what did you do? Well, I bought it for the entire uh, the entire choir at my daughter's school. Well, you're fired. Do I really need to fill out an expense report for that? Oh, it's for taxes. Oh, okay. No, it's not. It It's just mundane crap. So Benjamin Franklin, though, had the right idea when he wrote that. After all, it always is better to get things done quickly. It's always better to turn on a project early than it is to scramble desperately towards completion minutes before the due date. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? But if you're the kind of person who could easily do that, you wouldn't be here right now listening to me about this. You would have turned it off and said, well, I'm not a procrastinator. But you are, and everybody's a procrastinator with something. I wake up early, I work out, I do my job, I do this show, I am religious about it, and the reason, and I very rarely miss, I think I've posted the th- three or four times that the site's broken and I won't be posting tonight, but it's something that I religiously do. I have a schedule and I care about the schedule. I still don't do expenses. But procrastination, I imagine, is a demon we've all wrestled with on more than one occasion. You know you need to get stuff done, however, You can't push yourself to do it. Instead, you just waste time. The good news is, like I said, you're not lazy. Not really. It's like a deeper reason is behind your inability to get things done. Social psychologist Devin Price says I don't believe laziness exists. Situational constraints typically predict behavior far better than personality, intelligence, or other individual traits. There are always barriers. They continue to say that. Recognizing those barriers and viewing them as legitimate is often the first step to breaking lazy behavior patterns and why you can't get anything done on time? Well, answer this question. What sort of association do you make between your workplace performance and your value as a person? For example, if you make a mistake in the office, do you treat it as a personal failure? Today, I got some feedback. was it negative. I took it as negative and I took it personal. Why? Because I like to be a perfectionist. I have always been that way. I don't like to lose. But I can admit when I'm wrong, and that's not hard. The problem is is that instead of me getting frustrated or upset like most people do and put their head in the wall, I tend to give deference. I tend to be prostrate to somebody's thinking. I put myself under, so to speak. And I begin to take responsibility at an epic level, almost to a point where it's detrimental to my career. Everyone has these problems. According to the Australian Institute of Business, and we should always listen to the Aussies, right? perfectionism can actually play a significant role in procrastination. To summarize, high achievers can fall into a toxic mindset where anything less than perfection is a failure. Generally, they may suffer from low self-esteem that prevents them from effectively starting on task. Hey, fuck you, man. Who are you saying that? No, I'm just kidding. Or have such a paralyzing fear of failure that they can't even motivate themselves to start. Chances are, you aren't even consciously aware of the fears described above, and they can manifest in a wider number of ways. And honestly, there's not much you can do about it. If you're not conscious of it, it doesn't matter. Someone can tell you every day, and you won't buy it. But the thing is, is that that's not the way I process Actually, I'm a perfectionist because I care about my work and I want to be seen as reliable. And when I fail at that, it makes me feel stupid. And when I feel stupid, I lash out. It's always been a problem for me. And people aren't even trying to make me feel that way because nobody can make you feel anything. Only you can. But we're our own worst enemies. We get inside of our head when the demons come at night and we're laying there sleeping, staring at the ceiling. We can talk ourselves into anything. This manifestation as a lack of motivation to start on something you don't fully understand or as an aversion to criticism and scrutiny, it could manifest as a tendency to view even simple tasks as impossible, or it could manifest as a tendency to seek distraction the moment things get somewhat difficult. And there's also the burnout and depression. Perfectionism perfectionism isn't the only reason one might procrastinate, mind you, burnout, and it's Close cousin depression is an equally prevalent, equally destructive cause. You want to work, but you simply can't muster the energy to do so. You're drained, and even the smallest tasks seem to demand a Herculean degree of effort. Heather Ashman, an author with a master's in human behavior, notes this form of procrastination can manifest in several different ways. Difficulty prioritizing. Your brain is too overwhelmed to focus on getting anything done. Putting off even simple basic tasks. Again, you're too drained to do anything. Actively seeking distraction, anything to avoid confronting your lack of motivation. Defeating the dragon of procrastination, whether due to perfectionism or fatigue, the solution to procrastination starts with admitting you have a problem. From there, I strongly recommend seeking therapy for your underlying issue. And I'm not talking about seeing a shrink or getting on Prozac. Life coaches are amazing for this, but it's still a form of therapy. A lot of sports stars have it too. They have therapy coaches because they can't hit a freaking fastball or they can't hit a curveball, and all of a sudden they're 0 for 46 with three flies and hadn't had a ribby and 90 at-bats. They have a mental problem. They need some help. So there's no shame in it. It's not a display of weakness or some sort of personal failure. The fact is everyone can benefit from a trip to the therapist's office and call it what you want, a mentor, a sports psychologist, or a shrink. It doesn't matter. It's all the same thing, and they all went to the same school. A lot of people go to therapy, particularly successful people who need to work things out. Consequently, talking to a trained professional can help you more than you know. Beyond that, there are little things you can do to motivate yourself between meetings or exercises or other tasks that you consider to be mundane. I've seen a therapist it's really a big waste of time for me because I tend to put that person on the couch. I remember when I was 12 years old, I had a therapist that I had to see because although my IQ was excelling, I couldn't stay focused. I would get in fights and I would get in this. It really wasn't fights. It was me getting my ass kicked every single day as this class bully would follow me home on the bus. But my parents saw it as fights because my dad wouldn't hear of it. He would just say, go fight him harder. Well, no, that doesn't work, especially when you're literally soft as a freaking jelly donut, which I was. But I remember sitting there and we went into a room and he introduced himself and my mom and dad stepped away and he said, I he saw me admiring his chessboard. This was a huge office. I can't imagine how much he made an hour he had a mahogany board with offset inlay oak on the checkered patterns. They were hand carved out of some sort of stone and ivory. I mean, it was an expensive chess sort chess board, and, and he asked me if I wanted to play. And of course, I always wanted to play with my dad. He never played with me, but I played at school, and I played with my grandparents once in a while, and I loved chess. And I remember sitting down, and he opened up his move, and he allowed me to win, and it pissed me off to no avail because I realized I wasn't that good, but he wasn't trying. And I simply looked at him and said, did you just let me win? And he said, yes, and I said, Why? In the next game we played, he kicked my ass. And then I got mad and we kept playing. And literally for that hour we played. And then I asked him the question, Why did you let me win? He goes, Why do you think I let you win? And I said, I asked you first. The next twenty minutes literally was him explaining to me why he allowed me to win. And it was just a bunch of bullshit. I realized that that psychiatrist, therapist, psychologist, whatever, really are only as smart as what's in their head not necessarily what's on their degree. I've always had a gift to sit down with people and uncover what they truly were thinking. But this is how I do it is that I've learned to get through procrastination. It starts with conversation, it starts with questions. It starts with questioning myself. What do I want? What do I want to achieve? How do I get there? and then finding a touchstone, something that I can watch every morning or read every morning that will inspire me and remind me why I committed to it in the first place. That's just me. You could be different, but here's ways you can improve. Learn to recognize when you're procrastinating. Take action and refocus your attention when you do. If you are procrastinating, simply do it for two minutes, and then every time you look at the clock, say, I'm going to do it for one more. This is how I get through expenses. I say, I'm going to do one and submit it every single day, and I don't do it. So then I sit down, and I just do a couple, and then I say, all right, give me one more. Let me give me one more. And this is how SEALs, special forces, push their bodies past the breaking point. You learn this in the military. You can give one more push-up. You can negotiate with your body for more. You just have to have the conversation and be willing to fail. Find a routine. This doesn't really need to be anything complicated or even related to work. It could be as simple as going to a particular coffee shop for lunch. Every Wednesday or Thursday or whenever, you can gradually make this routine more intricate and complex as you move forward. Break big tasks up into smaller, bite-sized, actionable chunks. Commit to each small task and don't focus on anything else until it's done. Work in small spurts of 15 minutes or less. Take a break every now and then minimize your distractions when you're working as much as possible, or have one available to help you with your train of thought. You'll see me pick up my pencil occasionally, and when I do, it's usually because I'm going down the wrong path. So I need to distract my brain from literally going herky-jerky and bring it back to mama, so to speak. Focus on the task that you find the least palatable first. That way you look forward to it. Chest day is my favorite day. I hate leg day. Everybody hates leg day. Batman never skips leg day. So I've learned to do leg day first and then do chest last, and it keeps me in the middle where I need to be. Reward yourself for difficult tasks. Make sure you recognize when you do something strong. But don't blame yourself for procrastinating. You're working to overcome it now. We all procrastinate every now and then. But if that behavior is starting to negatively impact your personal and professional life, you need to address it. Follow the advice above and you can do just that. I give a lot of advice on the show. People ask me a lot of questions about their weight and about how they think. And I try to give them my answer. But what works for me doesn't necessarily work for you. But here's the thing. Try everything until you find what does or continue to put it off and never make that change that you constantly are arguing and negotiating yourself with. It's exhausting. Procrastination. I got it from my father. Quick story, the bathroom, we had a shared bathroom in my mom's bedroom and my bedroom. We had no doorknobs on our bathroom doors for like three years. My dad started a bathroom project. He never finished it. And it was just okay not to have doorknobs on. We had that little metal thing in the middle. And every time I had to use the throne, the porcelain throne, take the Browns to the Super Bowl, or negotiate the release of the chocolate hostage, or stock the lake with brown trout, I always felt that somebody was watching me. And I was modest at that age because it was dark in the rooms and I was always fearful. Procrastination affects people in all different ways. My dad was the king of procrastinators. And I like to say that I have become better because of the things that I've listed above. I hope it helps you. Let me know how it does. Leave some notes down below and tell me. I'm not saying I'm right, just that you were wrong. Stories of this mob-style cancel culture and violent protests at American universities like Yale, Evergreen State, and Middlebury are no longer the exception. Professors are now Being regularly threatened with cancellation nationwide. Hardly a week goes by, it seems, without a new incident. A music theory professor at the University of North Texas published a critique of another scholar's critical race argument about music theory, and his dean opened an investigation in the name of reaffirming our dedication to combating racism on campus and across all academic disciplines. A Princeton professor of classics came under fire for a dissenting letter against his colleagues. Racial justice demands and faced professional consequence as a result. A professor at University of North Carolina was accused of creating an unsafe learning environment for a pedagogical role-play exercise on social and economic justice. Even at the University of Chicago, a school that has been on the forefront of free speech and civil debate and discourse with its Chicago principles, a professor of geo, excuse me, geophysical sciences was attacked as unsafe for explaining his concerns about how his department was implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. He rejected the idea that in order to hire more women in science, the university needed to lower its standards, and attempted cancellation has ensued. Bob's coming for professors have become commonplace. That is a phenomenon, and it has petrified and silenced many students as well. Students who regularly report wanting to hear a diverse set of ideas but are afraid to speak up as well as the handful who challenge woke intolerant ideas and make national news. This is a tribal mentality on college campuses built around progressive calls for reform, and this has emerged. And students and professors who push back against these leftist ideals are essentially canceled leaving them at risk for ostracism, intimidation, and facing threats of significant consequences. No, they're not going to turn into an avian bird that is flightless. To be ostracized, to be cast out, to be singled out, to no longer allowed to be a part of the town or village or municipality, Worse, these tactics have spread from our nation's cloistered campuses to infect the nation at large. I'm not going to give you the definition of cloistered. Look it up. I'm doing too well tonight. Many Americans report having censored themselves on salient social political issues out of fear of reputational consequences. Man, this is beautiful. This new dynamic is dangerous for democracy and threatens the social, societal progress that stems from healthy debate. Of course, it's true that cancellation happens on the right, too. But this recent study, which sought to quantify cancel culture, found that it is far more prevalent on the left. And these are qualitative results as well. Recent surveys sought answers to who is most likely to end friendships over politics. And in fact, I'm pleasantly surprised to find that the numbers from the May 2021 American Perspective Survey are not terrible Only 15% of Americans report having left relationships over politics. 84% have not walked away. Well, I don't believe that. That's bullshit. But it's a good number. Let's assume it's right. However, a person's likelihood to end a friendship over politics is tightly coupled with their politics. Just 11% of those who identify as ideologically moderate say they have lost a friend over political matters. The number is a bit lower for Republican leaners, 8% and higher for Democrat leaners, and 18%. But a further breakdown of the responses reveals some troubling findings. While 10% of conservatives say they have lost a friend over politics, 28% of liberals say the same. For extreme conservative identifiers, 22% they have canceled a friendship, a handful of points higher than the national average. In contrast, a whopping 45% of extreme liberal identifiers have ended a friendship over politics, twice the figure of their conservative counterparts. While those on both extremes make up just under 10% of the overall sample, extremely liberal Americans in their actions have made cancel culture, culture a household name. Even amidst the political chaos of 2020, politics is not a regular point of conversation amongst friends. Among 6% of Americans say they talk government and politics with their friends on a near daily basis. Another 15% say they and their friends discuss the matter a few times a week. About a quarter, 24%, chat about civics a few times a month, while the majority, 55%, do so less often. However, 44% of extreme liberals talk politics at least a few times a week compared to just 13% of moderates and 32% of extreme conservatives. A quarter of Americans who are solidly but not extremely liberal or conservative discuss politics with friends on at least a weekly basis. While there is an ample number of conservatives who talk about politics frequently, conservatives are far less likely than liberals to lose our end friendships over disagreement. Instead, it appears that it is primarily liberals who cut off ties with those they disagree with. And I will tell you, this is what I've seen from my own feed, just to be honest. I have a lot of people from the left who come in and want to attack my show. They've never watched it. They have no idea what it's about, but they assume because anything says they're Trump or I have tattoos or American flags or military, they go, he's a righty. This is just what they do. This is the party that says, don't be prejudiced. Don't be racist. Don't be ideologically entrenched. But Anyone who disagrees with them, you're a a fucking righty. Okay, that works. It's the new cracker, okay? Moreover, the impulse to cancel does not stem from traditional social cleavages. If we look at generational cohorts, a huge factor in political behavior and outlook, we see minimal differences. Only 13% of Gen Zers and 17% of millennials have lost a friend because of that person's political beliefs. The numbers are practically the same for their boomer parents and grandparents at 18%. Neither race nor geography appear to play much of a role in an individual's likeliness to end a friendship over politics either. While 16% of white Americans claim they have stopped talking to friends because of politics, 10% of black Americans and 12% of Hispanic Americans report doing the same. City dwellers, who often find themselves in the midst of protests, are only a couple of points, 17%, more likely to say they have lost friends due to political difference than those who live in the sprawling, more private suburbs. Another 15%. So, in a way, it's good news and bad news. Cancel culture may not be as rampant as social media, and the press make it appear, but it remains an approach disproportionately taken by those left of center. This behavior is not only hypocritical, given the language of love and tolerance liberals preach, but it is also counterproductive. Our civic vitality is threatened when people cannot find shared humanity and fail to emphasize with others and recognize excuse me, failure to empathize with others and recognize that politics is about trade-offs and hearing the other side. We all make mistakes, and we do so with regularity. Some errors are small, such as, no, we don't need to stop at the store. There's plenty of milk left for breakfast. Some are bigger, such as, don't rush me. We have plenty of time to get the airport before the flight leaves. And some are crucial, such as, I know it was raining and dark, but I'm sure that was the man I saw breaking into the home across the street. No one enjoys being wrong. It's an unpleasant emotional experience for all of us. The question is, how do we respond when it turns out we were wrong? When there wasn't enough milk left for coffee, when we hit traffic and missed the flight, or when we found out the man who sat in jail for 5 years based on our identification was innocent all along. Some of us admit we were wrong and say, "Oops, you were right." We should have gotten more milk. Some of us kind of imply we were wrong, but we don't do so explicitly or in a way that is satisfying to the other person. We had plenty of time to get to the airport on time if the traffic hadn't been unusually bad, but fine, we'll leave earlier next time. But some people refuse to admit they're wrong, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. They let him go go because of DNA evidence and another dude's confession. Ridiculous, that's the guy. I saw him. The first two examples are probably familiar to most of us because those are typical responses to being wrong. We accept responsibility fully, partially, sometimes very, very partially, but we don't push back against the actual facts. We don't claim there was enough milk when there wasn't or that we were not late to the airport. But what about when a person does push back against the facts when they simply cannot admit they were wrong in any circumstance? What in their psychological makeup makes it impossible for them to admit they were wrong, even when it is obvious they were. And why does this happen so repetitively? Repetitively. Why do they never admit? The answer is related to the ego, their very sense of self. Some people have such a fragile ego, such brittle self-esteem, such a weak psychological constitution, that admitting they made a mistake or that they were wrong is fundamentally too threatening for their egos to tolerate. Accepting they were wrong, absorbing that reality would be so psychologically shattering. Their defense mechanisms do something remarkable to avoid doing so. They literally distort their perception of reality to make it less threatening. Steve Jobs was fantastic at this. So was Donald Trump. Their defense mechanisms protect their fragile ego by changing the very facts in their mind so they are no longer wrong or culpable. And although I am a Trump supporter, he was very good at this. And he did it constantly. They called Steve Jobs his reality distortion field and that he could change reality at a whim. My wife does this too, and I have been known to do it on occasion. We all have. As a result, they came up with statements such as, I checked in the morning and there was enough milk, so someone must have finished it. When it's pointed out that no one was home after they left in the morning, so no one could have done it, they double down and repeat, someone must have because I checked and there was milk, as though some phantom broke into the house finished the milk and left without a trace. In our other example here, they will insist that their erroneous identification of the robber was correct, despite DNA evidence and confessions from a different person. When confronted, they will continue to insist or pivot to attacking anyone who tries to argue otherwise, and to disparaging sources of the contradictory information. These lab makes mistakes all the time, and besides, you can't trust a confession from another criminal, and why do you always take their side? People who repeatedly exhibit this kind of behavior are, by definition, psychologically fragile. Now, that sounds like an insult, but really it's not. We're all fragile as something. Maybe some are weaker than others. Maybe some people have bad knees. Maybe some people just don't have the thought process to solve complex problems. And maybe there are some people who rely too much on ego and not enough common sense. It's okay. However, this assessment is often difficult for people to accept because to the outside world, they look as if they're confidently standing their ground and not backing down. Things were associated with this strength. But psychological rigidity is not a sign of strength. It is an indication of weakness. These people are not choosing to stand their ground. They're compelled to do so in order to protect their ego. Admitting we are wrong is unpleasant. It is bruising for any ego. It takes a certain amount of emotional strength and courage to deal with the reality and own up to our mistakes. Most of us sulk a bit when we have to admit we're wrong, but we get over it. But when people are constitutionally unable to admit they're wrong, when they cannot tolerate the very notion that they are capable of mistakes, it is because they suffer from an ego so fragile that they cannot sulk and get over it oh, they soul can get over it. They they cannot get over it. They need to warp their very perception of reality and challenge obvious facts in order to defend their not being wrong in the first place. How we respond to such people is up to us. The one mistake we should not make is to consider their persistent and rigid refusal to admit they're wrong as a sign of strength or conviction because it is the absolute opposite. Psychological weakness and fragility are real. There are a few things you can do. I've told you I have banned a lot of people from the site. And it's not because they argue or can't admit they're wrong. It's that they will not listen to anyone else's points. They'll make a statement. You answer the statement. And instead of them reflecting and addressing what you had to say, they will simply create more counter arguments to something that you're not talking about. The straw man, the fallacy arguments. There's like 11 different ones. And the whole point of it is that you can identify these people quickly. I have chosen to cut them out of my life. I just don't have time for it. I will be happy to accept them as a friend on Facebook. But on Don't Unfriend Me, I don't want it in my network. I want this site to be about argument. And argument requires two people to have a say. And it takes two people to listen. And that is probably the biggest thing that the deniers do. Is the failure to open up their ears, close their mouth... And use it to admit on even the slightest occasion that they could possibly be wrong. Louder at Loudoun County Public Schools, Virginia teacher Lilith Vanetsyan said her colleagues are afraid. Oh, Vanetsyan. It's Russian. Vanetsyan. I could try to do this all day. Lilith Vanetsyan. That's it. Said her colleague. Colleagues are afraid to speak out against critical race theory for fear of losing their jobs. Lilith, a teacher in Fairfax County, Virginia, confronted school board officials in neighboring Loudoun County on Tuesday to push back against what she described as radical lesson plans that will teach kids to root for socialism by the time they get to middle school. Parents! The longer that you wait and don't have your child's uh, school accountable gives these guys more time to dictate what's best for your child's physical, mental, and emotional health, she said pointing to the board as she spoke from the podium at Tuesday's school board meeting. She joins a growing number of parents like me and educators who are speaking out against the controversial critical race theory, which opponents argue is a a divisive curriculum that teaches adolescents to judge one another by the color of their skin. I'm going to play the video for you. It's probably one of the best one-minute speeches you can see. There's a book called One Minute Manager. I have had my team read it many, many times. And it's probably one of the best books for one minute to give praise, take praise away, give direction. And if you can't say it in one, you shouldn't be saying it at all. Now, that's not with this show. The show's One Minute Manager, usually about 45 of them. But this is one of the best one-minute speeches I have seen, and then I'm going to go into one more video of my daughter, which I think you guys will appreciate. Let's give this a watch and just enjoy it. This lady smokes this board.
1: Fairfax County public school teacher, and I'm going to give a message of encouragement to parents and teachers and students who are too afraid to come and speak forward. Parents, the longer that you wait and you don't hold your child's schools accountable gives these guys more time to dictate what's best for your child's physical, mental, and emotional health. Don't be afraid to speak out for your kids because they are voiceless and they, and they rely on you. You should be afraid of them rooting for socialism by the time they get to middle school. Teachers, it may seem that our careers have come to a dead end, but I'm here to remind you we don't work for the school board. We work to mold the next generation of well-rounded American patriots. So don't give up because it is up to us. Students, you are on the front lines of these indoctrination camps. Challenge the staff when you are presented with a ludicrous statement and do not allow anybody to tell you that you cannot accomplish anything because of your skin color or to hate yourself because of your skin color. Students, it is up to you to be the next generation of victims or victors. And finally, to the board, this isn't over and your policies are just as... Nick Goffard followed by Ryan...
0: you go sister z formation holy shit i love it i'm married but i'll tell you what uh that's a great woman i mean seriously passionate articulate smart driven has that greek look and russian look which is uh, kind of a soft place in my heart sorry honey i just got hit by my wife i'm smitten and i love educated women i love educated people i love people that can talk with passion that have something in their lives. The Greeks said, they didn't ask of a person if they lived well or if they had money when they died. They asked, did they live with passion? And this lady certainly lives with passion. Social media users gave her rave reviews. Share this everywhere. Every parent, teacher, student should hear it. Conservative comedian Tim Young tweeted, the sound of courage challenges the poison of cowardice, agreed Minnesota national candidate Scott Jensen. Not all heroes wear capes, others applauded. Parents and teachers in Loudoun County have made national news as of late for their stand against the local school board's agenda, but the trend is catching on elsewhere. New Jersey prep school teacher Dana Plough resigned this week over her school's curriculum, which she argued is causing white and male students to believe they are oppressors. The school's ideology requires students to see themselves not as individuals but as representatives of a group, forcing them to adopt the status of privilege or victimhood. Adding that students arrive in her classroom believing that people born with less melanin in their skins are oppressors, and people born with more melanin in their skin are oppressed. These children are the future of this country, and if you love this country, you will do anything and everything to stand up for the vulnerable population that is our children, Ben told Fox News. Dana Perino, Monday on America's Newsroom, also had some words to say on this if you'd like to go over and watch it on Fox News. I'm not a big Fox News guy all the time, but I will tell you to see this was fantastic. I'm going to take you with another story, and hats off to that teacher. I wish you were in our district. I happen to live in Loudoun County, and I have Loudoun County schools, and I have fought these schools for many times. You all remember the story about my daughter, who had straight A's all the way up until fifth grade, and she met a new teacher. I'm not going to give you the teacher's name, but it kind of sounds like Fauci. Which should tell you something. But this teacher obviously had it out for my daughter. My daughter challenged her early during COVID when the teacher made a statement that COVID was the worst thing to happen to the world. My daughter, as I came around the corner out of the kitchen running at 110 miles an hour to literally lambast the teacher verbally and I was going to lose my shit simply holds a finger up to me like this and goes, Dad, I've got it. And I'm like, okay. So I break out my phone because I want to see if she truly has it. This is the same daughter that for eight minutes told me all the colors of the flag, how many congressmen we had, how many senators we had, went through the first 10 amendments, and I'm not talking about freedom of speech, but going into the right to assemble, peacefully assemble, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, and can go into quartering of troops, and why? And for 10 minutes at like five or six years old, just did a video on this. I'll show it to you sometime. And this is what my daughter said from here. Now, you might need to turn it up because it's not the highest audio, but enjoy this, and I will come back and tell you a little bit about it.
1: Um, yes, I actually have... Oh,
0: hang on. Let me get your mic for me. All right. Um, yeah, I I actually have a question about how COVID-19 was the second worst thing that had ever happened to America. So, I was, I was
1: talking to Kai about that, and... It's not, um, it's not that there weren't other pandemics, my love. It's that, uh, it, it's been one of the most devastating ones. So yes, there are some other ones. Cameron, yes, buddy. Um, but it, let's put it this way. Since, since Girl 11 month that's been like, the most world changing effect. Let's put it that way. Because it's happened all, all over the world.
0: Um. Uh, yeah, but what what about Vietnam and the Civil War and World War Two and World War One and stuff like that? That wasn't yeah. devastating. Yeah. Yeah. World
1: War I, I just mean in respect to um, how it's yeah how it's affected the whole world. Does that make
0: sense? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. And it didn't to my daughter, who was trying not to piss herself laughing. Listen, I've raised my kids to ask questions and to challenge, and every single person should. Critical race theory, it's a theory, and it might be right. I'm not saying it's not. We can have that debate, but you must ask questions. Empower your children to think for themselves. I don't care if my daughter is a Democrat, but she will be the most educated Democrat on the planet, and she will understand both sides equally. I get ridiculed sometimes from people to say, pick a side. You man, you have such a voice. Run for office. Be a Democrat, be a Republican, pick one. I don't have to. I'm an American. I don't give a fuck about which policy and party I'm with. I care about what's more morally and unequivocally right. That is what is important to me. My daughter, after that, for the first time in her life, received all C's. The teacher left a diatribe of information paragraphs of how great my daughter was and she uses her for her reading skills and her writing skills and and just how she emulated the perfect student but the grades were somehow different that day most certainly did this i have talked to the principal many times i even said to myself i wasn't going to post this video i've posted it one other time i do it because this is what happens Anybody who says that COVID-19 is the second most impactful thing that has happened in the world is a fucking moron and should never teach anything. You shouldn't teach how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, let alone the education of our children. COVID-19 is not by far the worst pandemic ever. It's not even in the top 20 But let's not forget all of the other things in the world. And I don't have to go through the Crusades. I don't have to go through Kenya. I don't have to go through the Diamond Runners. I don't have to go through the Russians. I don't have to go through Syria. I don't have to go through the beheading of thousands and gassing of thousands of freaking Iraqis or the literal annihilation of the Jewish population in Middle Eastern Europe. There are so many different things that we could talk about. We can talk about financial crisis, Oklahoma City bombing. bombing. We can talk about terrorist acts. We can talk about school shootings. We can talk about 67,000 gun deaths a year. There are so many other things. But this thought process, critical race theory, toxic masculinity, white fragility, it doesn't allow you to explore other options. It is final as death. It is the stamp. It is the the hand of death and the sickle and the scythe coming across, sowing and reaping the field. It stops all conversation because there is only one way. You're either racist or you're not. Well, there is a whole bunch of gray inside of there because everybody has a little bit of both. Everybody has gray. It's not so black and white. And isn't it ironic that that's the only thing they're teaching? These theories are not proven. They're not science. There hasn't been an argument or a debate about them. Because if you do, you are canceled. And folks, that is not democracy. That is not education. That is fascism. And that is the one thing that socialism is not supposed to be about. It's on the opposite, extrem of the, uh, uh, the opposite side of the political spectrum. Yet we find more and more that socialists have more in common with fascists, which is interesting. It comes down to this. Hats off to this teacher. I am so proud of her. I hope she speaks again because I would love to go see her do it. And thank you so much for standing up for our children. This is happening in your school district. The question is, are you going to say something? What are you going to do about it? And if you refuse to... And you won't at least arm your kids with a fighting chance, which starts with education, a passion to learn, the ability to admit they're wrong, and not to be procrastinators, if not lazy. See how I brought it all together, folks? Sometimes it just does that thank you folks that is it for my show tonight episode 166 54 minutes i'm feeling good i hope you enjoyed it i hope you liked it remember we can agree we can disagree you can love me you can hate me just don't unfriend me but remember i reserve the right to ban you from my sight just don't be an asshole that's all i ask and i'll try to do the same folks 1-800-273-8255 the veteran crisis hotline 22 veterans commit suicide a day 22 a day is coming up in PTS awareness. It's not PTSD, it's PTS. It's not a disorder, it's something that happens to you and it can be cured. The only way to do that is through conversation and having that conversation is one of the toughest things a veteran will do. Give them that opportunity, give them this phone number. If they can't talk to you, call me. I'll help. If you have a veteran in your life that you want to talk to, a son or daughter that you're not able to reach and something's wrong, please give me a chance. I would love to. I've done it many times before, but if that doesn't work, you can go to don'tunfriendme.com, click on the VCL link, and be connected to a Skype operator or whatever your teleconference you have on your computer, and you'll be connected. And remember, if you are a civilian, they will help you too. They turn no man, woman, or child away. They are amazing. Folks, please give me a share a like a subscribe and a follow if you haven't done it come back tomorrow for 167 i am excited for our thursday show go abs tomorrow please win i would love for the season to continue but if not it was just in the cards have a great night folks and i will see you tomorrow